which is something I would do, but I did not today. So it's all just a happy coincidence. Uh, some of, for some of you, you have uh, uh, for several weeks on Sundays really looked forward to greeting uh, one of the seeing eye dogs uh, that uh, Keith and Karen Wood are in the process of raising the puppies that are going into the seeing eye dog program. Uh, today is Trek's last Sunday with us, so uh, Blonde Trek will be leaving, so you'll want to wish him well, I, as much as you can wish a dog well. Just tell him have a, be, to be a good boy. I guess that's all you can do. Uh, but um, Idris will be around for a little bit. Uh, actually, it is uh, a, a great help for socializing um, uh, these dogs that will go uh, serve, that uh, you greet him. And uh, so Trek is leaving today. Say goodbye. Uh, the other thing that I wanted to uh, uh, share with you, good news, uh, Aaron Brown proposed to his girlfriend Joanne and they are getting married. So congratulations to you. If you don't know Joanne, uh, introduce yourself, give her lots of opportunities to show you her ring. So that's what you're supposed to do and uh, we wish them heartiest congratulations. Do you have a date yet? When is it? November 28th, so they're gonna, uh, Aaron's going to have a happy Thanksgiving, so very good. Well, take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, please. Matthew chapter 1, if you would, turn with me. Uh, we're going to read from verse 18 in just a couple of minutes. I want you to be ready for when we get there. Uh, Matthew 1, verse uh, 18 is where I want to direct your attention uh, this morning. I have very good news for you today about the 2020 presidential election. This is the best possible news that there could be about the presidential election in the United States. The good news that I have to tell you about the election is that it will be over in eight and a half months. That is the best possible news. And then for at least a brief period of time, there will be no political ads, no more debates, no more special coverage no fundraising, no more, I'm Joel Devaney and I approve this message, uh, will be spared until at least March of 2021 when the 2024 campaign will begin. Uh, so we're in the season of our political life when there are a horde of candidates asking for your support. They're making a case for why you should vote for them. They're the most qualified. They're the most prepared. They have the character. They have the experience. They have the skills that merit your support. And while they're making their pitch to you, all of their opponents are trying to find the reasons why you shouldn't vote for them. Uh, the Trump campaign does not want you to remember some of the vulgar things that the president has said about women. Um, Elizabeth Warren does not want you to remember her Native American heritage. Bernie Sanders does not want you to dig up old recordings of him praising the Soviet Union and their communist system. Uh, Michael Bloomberg is trying to escape from some of the things that he said about uh, young minorities during his uh, uh, reign as mayor of New York and the Stop, Ask, and Frisk program. Uh, all these skeletons in the closet, one group wants them to stay there, one group is desperately trying to bring them out. Now, take that template for a moment and put it on top of the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew does not merely want your vote. He does not want your financial support. Instead, he demands your absolute and total allegiance. 
It's what he demands of you. He claims total and complete authority over your life. And in every way and in every detail, he presumes to tell you what to do. If you're going to follow him the way he demands to be followed, it means you have to obey every command that he issued. And much of the Gospel of Matthew, especially these first few chapters, makes the case that Jesus in every way is worthy of that sort of allegiance. It makes sense. It makes perfect sense. In fact, this is the best way you could possibly live, uh, living under the authority, the supreme authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that's true, there better not be any skeletons in his closet. There better not be any scandals. There better not be no, uh, any October surprises that are going to make me rethink my commitment. Oh, I didn't know that about him. Well, um, there's this one thing you should know about Jesus. His birth um, was a little unusual. His mother and the, the man who raised him, when they were engaged, uh, betrothed actually, that's when she found out she was pregnant. Why does the good news about Jesus begin with a scandal like that? Why do we start that way? The story is going to be hard enough as it is. Why start with this scandal? I think it dogged Jesus' entire life. John chapter 8 records this conversation that Jesus had with some Jewish leaders. They were opposing him. And they had an argument about who uh, had the true Jewish heritage. And they said, we have Abraham as our father. And, and, and Jesus said, <laughs> if Abraham were your father, you would act like Abraham, but you don't act like Abraham. This made them mad. And they looked at Jesus and they said, well, we're not illegitimate children. I wonder if, if they had done some of their own opposition research. Jesus, we know where you came from. <laughs> we know your story. We're not illegitimate children. I, th I think this dogged him his whole life. Scandal. Is there a scandal here? Well, actually, no. What I want to prove to you this morning or demonstrate to you is that there's not a scandal. There is wonder in this passage. The virgin birth is a feature. It's not a bug in the Gospel of Matthew. I imagine this. You're, you're watching a football game, and your favorite team is on the field, and they line up, and, and you look at them, and, and you think to yourself, there's something strange about how they're lining up. I don't know enough about football to recognize that, but some of you do. You look on the field, and you think, something's not, something's not right about that. What is going on? Call a timeout. You, you start talking to the coach, right, because you're good at this. Call a time. Something, something, there's mixed signals. Something's not, and then the ball moves, and they do this play, and it's astounding. You, you can't quite catch what's going on. All you know is that in the third down, when they, it was a third and 15, they gained 45 yards on that play, and you just stare at your television. And they replay it once, and, and you try to follow the ball. And, and the second time, and, the, and by the third time, you see it. It dawns on you the brilliance of this play. It's the Philly special all over again or something like it. This is brilliant. This is the best coach in the whole world. Uh, two and a half minutes ago, you were like, what a moron, call time out. And now you're like, he's a genius, right? Or let's imagine that you're, you're looking for a house. People do that, buying a new house. 
and you walk into a room. The house has been empty because people moved out. They're trying to sell it. The, room is, the house is empty, except you walk into this one room, and there's this bookshelf on the wall, and it's kind of weird. It's hanging out a little bit at a strange angle, and there's marks on the wall around it. And you think, well, why didn't they take that bookshelf with them? It's, I mean, come on. And then the realtor goes over and pushes a spot in the wall, and the bookshelf moves, and behind it is a secret room. And you think to yourself, I have always wanted a house with a secret room. Take my money. I want this house. I have to have this house. You thought something was wrong, uh, but now you see, oh, it's right. It's way right. It, It couldn't be any righter than it is. That's the birth story of Jesus here. It's not a scandal. It's a wonder. It doesn't make Jesus disqualified for your confidence in him. It makes him eminently qualified. Matthew 1 is uh, one of the passages that we are familiar with, we are most familiar with. Uh, We read it every year in December, and we usually put it to one of two uses. Uh, On the one hand, this is a passage we go to when it comes to talking about or, or defending the virgin birth or the virgin conception of Jesus. We believe that Jesus has no human biological father. We believe that his mother was a virgin when he was conceived and she remained a virgin until after he was born. This is a belief that we as followers of Jesus, as followers of Jesus, have been defending for a long time. For a long time we've had to make arguments about that. For about 200 years, at least since the Enlightenment, people have been saying to us, you know, these miracles in the Bible, I mean, come on, these pre-scientific people, you need to update what you believe a little bit. You need to update it so, so that people... Listen, modern people are not going to accept Jesus if you keep insisting on all these weird miracles. You need to drop them to stay relevant. We've heard that for a couple hundred years. We've been arguing about this. You know what they're telling us now, of course. They're telling us now that if we want to be relevant, we need to change what we believe the Bible teaches about human sexuality. Because modern people aren't going to accept what the Bible teaches about sexuality. So we just need to update things so we remain relevant. But we don't update God's word. He has spoken to us. He has said what is true and what is right and what is good and what is beautiful. And we take him at his word. We are not going to spend very much time today talking about the arguments for and against uh, the virgin birth. Uh, But it's here in the Bible. And most often... um, Your attitude toward miracles in general will determine your attitude towards this passage. (laughs) We believe that Jesus is the incarnate Son of God. We believe he died on a cross and rose again and ascended into heaven. If you believe in the resurrection, the virgin birth is not that hard to accept. Uh, There's a story about a man who worked in a coal mine during the Welsh revivals in the early 1900s. In the 19, early 1900s, there was a great revival among uh, Welsh coal miners. That I have heard this. I'm not sure. Maybe some of you have heard this too. Uh, that the pit ponies that they used to take into the pit, into the mines in the Welsh revival. Uh, after the Welsh revival, the language of the coal miners got cleaned up so much that the pit ponies could no longer understand them and follow orders because there was not as much, nearly as much swearing as there used to be before the revival. 
Well, there's a man who uh, was a coal miner. He became a follower of Jesus. His life was dramatically changed. He was not a master theologian. He was not an educated man. But one day somebody came up to him and said, do you really believe, do you really believe that Jesus turned water into wine? Can you really believe that? And, and the man said to him, well, uh, I'm not an expert about that, but I do know that in my house Jesus turned beer into furniture. Your basic orientation toward miracles of any kind will impact how you read this passage of Scripture. Now, the second main use that we put to this passage is uh, we use it to tell the Christmas story and think about Mary and Joseph. I've done it. You've heard me do it. It's Christmas time. Let's talk about the couple, right? Let's talk about Joseph. You can do that with the text. I'm not sure that was Matthew's main point. Um, You can tell that because Matthew gives us very little information about Joseph. We don't know anything about him, practically nothing about him. We know everything we need to know about him, but we don't know very much. And he doesn't even speak in the Gospel of Matthew, not at all. The angel gets more words than Matthew. The prophet Isaiah has been dead for 600 years. He has more lines in this passage than Joseph does. So uh, Matthew's concern here is not to give us a Sunday school lesson for a Christmas play. Instead, Matthew wrote what he did about Jesus and about his birth as part of his overall argument that Jesus is worthy of all of the allegiance that he demands of you. Five times in these first few chapters, he's going to say, all this happened to fulfill what the prophet said. What happens when Jesus is born matches God's plans. It fulfills God's promises. It is part of what God said he was going to do, and he's doing it in Jesus Jesus is fully qualified for your highest confidence. Now, I'm going to walk through this passage this morning. We're going to do it for simplicity's sake under three headings. We're going to talk first about Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Then we're going to talk about Jesus and Joseph. And then we're going to talk about Jesus and Isaiah. These headings are just going to help us a little bit to organize things as we move through. But the appeal of this passage is to your heart. It wants you to trust Jesus confidently. It wants you to so admire, so be enraptured, to be in awe of him that when Jesus says, obey all my commands, you say, yes, yes, absolutely, without question, yes, yes. That's what this passage is here for. Let's start by talking about Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Now, we're going to talk about the characters here in a minute. uh, But the key phrase in this passage here is pregnant through the Holy Spirit. It's repeated down at the end of verse 20. It says, what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. There's a miracle here that I cannot explain and that Matthew does not describe in detail. There is a new life here. Notice, uh, this new life begins with conception. There is a new life here, uh, and that new life is a son. And this life comes about through the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one by whom God the Son, the preexistent God, the second member of the Trinity, comes into human flesh, uh, and this is the Spirit's work. This is where Jesus of Nazareth comes from. 
Matthew describes this vaguely. He describes it delicately. There are ancient legends. There are pagan myths about uh, women having children with the gods. They are not nearly this delicate. They are not this careful. She was pregnant through the Holy Spirit. This language is actually the uh, same in the original uh, to the Greek text to the way Matthew describes parentage in uh, chapter 1. So he describes uh, three, there's four women, of course, in Matthew chapter 1, earlier in the genealogy, uh, and we have the parentage of Perez and Boaz and Obed. Look at chapter, uh, verse 5 of chapter 1. All right, chapter 1, verse 5, just over on the side of the page. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. There's, what's what I'm thinking about? Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Literally, the text says, Salmon, the father of Boaz, of or out of or by Ruth. By Ruth. Just like, that's the same way that it says in in verse 18, she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit or out of the Holy Spirit. Just like Salmon and Rahab came together and Boaz was born, so the Holy Spirit and Mary come together, not at all in a sexual way, but together from them, Jesus, the God-man, is conceived. By the power of the Holy Spirit, God the Son becomes the God-man. The Holy Spirit and fleshes God the Son, and Jesus, the God-man, is the result. We should be prepared for this, we who are Bible readers, because this is what we believe the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit gives life. In Genesis chapter 1, when God created... Here we are in the Garden of Eden. When God created Adam, He formed him out of mud, and then He breathed by the Spirit into His his, uh, body life. The Holy Spirit gives life. It is the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we have spiritual life. If you're a follower of Jesus, it is because the Spirit has given you spiritual life. We should be prepared to think about this unique role that this young woman plays too. In Genesis 3.15, when God gave the first promise that he was going to send a deliverer, he said to Satan that there would be conflict between his seed, his offspring, and the offspring of the woman. A seed of the woman. He does not say a son of Adam, but a descendant of Eve. There's the emphasis there. All human beings are descendants of a father and and a a mother. I understand that. But there's something about this deliverer to come associated with woman. Paul said in Galatians 4, Jesus was born of a woman. That's how the Bible always talks about Jesus being born of a woman, his parentage. Frederick Bruner says in this passage, we see the Holy Spirit at work doing some of his favorite activity. First, He enfleshes God the Son. Jesus is, by the work of the Holy Spirit, truly human. And then in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, Paul wrote that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the power of the Holy Spirit. What does the power of the Holy Spirit do? What does the Holy Spirit do? He testifies to us that Jesus is truly God and truly man. These twin truths. Um, Our doctrinal statement, in keeping with the ancient creeds and confessions of the church, affirms these twin truths. Listen to what it says. We believe in Jesus Christ, God's one and only eternal Son. Conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, He is fully God and fully human. Churches and and bodies of Christians have been writing statements like that for 2,000 years. And it's the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit at work 
overseeing this process of encoding these truths. We trust in the Holy Spirit for the prospering and the protection of our congregation. You should also see in this story we have all three members of the Godhead, don't we? We have the Father who speaks through the angel and the prophet. We have the Son who is incarnated. And we have the Spirit who does that enfleshing work. He is a baby like no other baby that has ever been born. He can make a claim on your life. He can make any claim on your life that he wants to. Jesus can. Now, if you're worried about the scandal, let's talk about how Joseph handled it. Let's talk about Jesus and Joseph here. Verse 18 again, we'll start there. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. You know the basic facts. You've heard them, right? Every December, um, you you know this. So um, Joseph and Mary were, to use the language here, betrothed. Not engaged, but betrothed. uh, 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 Betrothment is between engagement and marriage. So they called each other uh, husband and wife, or they were called husband and wife. Their, their relationship could only be ended through a divorce, but they weren't living together as husband and wife. That's what betrothal is. Joseph had not yet taken Mary into his house, and Matthew is clear, he's clear that they had not been intimate with one another. But Matthew said she was found to be pregnant. Who found her pregnant? Well, um, Joseph at least. And Joseph concludes that Mary has been unfaithful to him. She's been stepping out. Uh, Some people blame this uh, virgin birth idea, this pre-scientific naivete. Well, these these first century people, they didn't know anything, so they would swallow any pill. Well, Joseph knows where babies come from. He at least is smart enough to know that there's something wrong here. She's, he's not been involved in this pregnancy. He knows that. So there has to be some other guy. So what does Joseph do? Verse 19. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. There's two things we find out about Joseph in this passage. He's faithful to the law. Your translation might say he was righteous. He cared about what God says in his word. And second, he was compassion, compassionate. Because he was righteous and he faithful to the law, he knew he could not marry her, his apparently unfaithful betrothed wife. But because of his compassion, he decided to divorce her quietly. Now, he could have, he could have stood up in the public square and said, Ladies and gentlemen, I have an announcement to make about you. This woman, Mary, has been unfaithful to me. She's pregnant, and I'm not the father. She's guilty, and I'm divorcing her, and I want all of you to know it. And he could very publicly give her the certificate of divorce. It would say something like, uh, Our relationship is over. You're free to marry anybody you want. The certificate of divorce was. He could have done that. Can you imagine the impulse that might drive him to do that? Revenge. Maybe out of pain or out of sorrow over the betrayal. She did me dirty. I'm going to do her good too. And announce this publicly to everybody. He could have done that. But instead he uh, chose to end his uh, his betrothal quietly. 
I wonder how he imagined that conversation was going to go, if he thought about it. When we get to the passages in Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew, that talk about divorce, we're going to have to take this passage into consideration. Do you notice here in the passage, Matthew implies that in this case, divorce was the righteous choice. Does that ever translate today? Or maybe we should also take into account that because Jesus is now in the picture and a messenger from God comes, that changes what is the righteous choice. We'll have to think about that. Let's talk about how that works out in what Matthew says about divorce. We'll get there eventually. Right in the beginning of this story of Jesus, we have an out-of-wedlock mother and a serious contemplation about divorce. Does that sound like your family at all? Verse 20, after he had considered this, I ponder over that phrase a little bit. How long did God make him think about this? Mary found out about the pregnancy before she was pregnant. Joseph found out about the pregnancy several months in. Why didn't God tell him about the pregnancy before this? Don't you suppose an angel could have gotten them together and said, listen, I got some news for both of you. Don't you think he could have done that? could have pulled that off. Um, I I don't know why God didn't tell him, but I recognize this. I I recognize that God sometimes lets us flounder a little bit in our confusion uh, for his own good purposes. After he considered this, verse 20, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. We're Bible readers. We're familiar with Joseph and dreams, uh, a different Joseph and dreams. We're familiar with that. But the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. There it is again. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. I wonder if anyone up to this point in time had yet called Joseph son of David. David was pretty uh, far back in his genealogy. His family was prominent in the lore of Israel, but not really in the nation anymore. Do you know, in the, in the book of Matthew, there are two people identified as sons of David, Joseph and Jesus. He's in very good company, this man is. The angel uh, commands, Mary to take, uh, commands Joseph to take Mary into his home. Go ahead, marry her. And he tells Joseph about the divine origin of the baby, about the gender. There's no ultrasound machines, but Mary and Joseph knew what their baby was going to be. Don't bring any pink blankets to the shower. Blue, blue, blue all the way, we know. And Joseph is to name the baby. That's key. You, you, Joseph, are to give him the name. To name the baby is to take responsibility for the baby. Joseph, if you name the baby, he becomes your baby. You are a son of David, and he legally becomes a son of David too. He's the son of God, conceived by the Holy Spirit, uh, and he's the son of David by Joseph's own choice and declaration, and he becomes a legal heir, the legal son of David. What a name this is he gives him too. You are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the New Testament equivalent of Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. It's a wonderful uh, ambiguity in the text if you think about this. Here's the reason for the name. He will save his people from their sins. 
Who is the he? The he is Jesus, and his name means Yahweh saves. So who's going to save his people from their sins? Yahweh saves is going to save the people from their sins. (laughs) There's something special about this baby. Uh, When the New Testament speaks about the divinity of Jesus, it does not so much say there's God and then there's Jesus. Instead, what it does, it says there's God and here's what he does. And guess what? Jesus does those things too. Kind of enfolds Jesus, includes Jesus in the divine work of what God does. What does God do? God saves. And here's this boy, this son, now born. His name is God saves. And he's going to save. Who saves? Yahweh saves. There he is over there. Yahweh saves. Come here for dinner. Notice what he's going to save his people from. You can be saved from a flood. You can be saved from a fire. You can be saved from a con man. You can be saved from an enemy. Someone can save you from falling. What does Jesus do? Jesus saves from sin. If you're going to be one of Jesus' people, you have to come face to face with this reality You have sin from which you need to be saved. You have a problem from which you need to be rescued. My guess this morning is that some of you in this room have a Goldilocks problem when it comes to sin. You know the story of Goldilocks, right? Goldilocks, little girl, she comes up to the house. House is empty, and and she goes in, and, and there's food on the table, porridge. I would not be tempted to eat it, but she tries it. One bowl's too hot, one bowl's too cold, one bowl's just right. She goes in the living room, she sits down, one, bed, uh, one chair is too hard, one chair is too soft, one chair is just right. She gets sleepy from all the tryptophan and that turkey-flavored porridge, and she goes upstairs, and there's beds. One bed is too hard, one bed is too soft, one bed is just right. You find out. The mama bear's bed, and the papa bear's bed, and the baby bear's bed. Why is the mama bear's porridge cold? Her baby's porridge is an okay temperature, but why is her porridge cold? It's because she's a mother. She never gets to sit down for a hot meal. She's taking care of everybody else. Poor mother hasn't had a hot meal in 12 years, right? Some of you are like papa bear's when it comes to sin. Some of you are like mama bears when it comes to sin. On the one hand, some of you, when the Bible talks about sin, you're inclined to scoff a little bit. Come on. That antiquated language. It's judgmental. It's nitpicky. I'm better than a lot of people I know. I'm not that bad. I'm not perfect, but who is? So stop dredging all that stuff up. You're hard. On the other hand, some of you are just so soft that, that you can't think about anything else. You're racked with guilt and shame and grief and sorrow all the time. You're rotten and you know it. You don't need someone to tell you. When you were a child, all your mother had to do was look at you a certain way. You cried and cried. Your brother could be beaten with an inch of his life and he never did anything, right? Never responded in any way. I think you should face who you are and you should face it honestly. The Bible says that all of us have sinned. We have all disobeyed the Creator. We all are living in rebellion against Him. And I think you should embrace what Jesus has done wholeheartedly and and you should take the angel at His word that He said when He said that Jesus will save from sin. All of you. Anyone who believes 
in this room. Jesus will save you from your sin. Matthew doesn't go into detail here in this passage about how Jesus does it. He'll do that later in his book. But we know he did it for, uh, by dying for us on the cross, by paying the penalty we owe God because of our sin. He bore our guilt. He suffered our shame. He experienced the wrath of God that we deserved. Don't be so hard towards sin that this doesn't matter. Don't be so soft that you don't turn to Jesus for the solution. Take Matthew at his word. His name is Jesus because he saves his people from their sin. Now we're going to come back and talk about uh, Joseph and his response to the angel in a minute. But notice we're told twice here about Jesus' origin. He's from the Holy Spirit into the womb of the Virgin Mary. It's not a scandal. It's a wonder. It's a miracle. Now let's talk about Jesus and Isaiah here. Let's finish by talking about Jesus and Isaiah. The original manuscripts of the New Testament don't have quotation marks, so some people wonder if the angel, did he stop at the end of verse 21, or was he still talking in this explanation in verse 22 to Joseph? That's possible. Look, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet... The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Here's the first of five passages in the first couple chapters of Matthew, where Matthew reaches back into the Old Testament, and he shows how the birth of Jesus and the events surrounding it fulfill what God spoke through the prophets. Here's Isaiah. Isaiah said this. Here's what's happening because Isaiah said this. There have been, you can imagine, pages and pages and pages and pages of material written about the relationship between Matthew and Isaiah. Pages of it. Um, And how those prophecies and events fit together. We're used to thinking about prophecies in a pretty straight line thing. The prophet says something and a hundred years later it happens or a thousand years later it happens. Here's the prophecy and then the fulfillment as if it's a straight line thing. We're going to see one of those next week. Where's the Messiah going to be born? Bethlehem, Micah says. Where is Jesus born? Bethlehem, straight line. I think maybe what's happening, what we're going to see this too and later in Matthew chapter 2, is what happen, is happening here between Isaiah and Matthew is not so much a straight line thing, but a pattern. We're going to see a pattern of how God works during Isaiah's time and Jesus matches that pattern. He fills that pattern. He magnifies and extends that pattern. You actually, I think you can see that in the text itself. So look at verse 20 and, the, uh, and how, it, how it begins. After he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. And then verse 22, the Lord speaks through a prophet. So we have an angel coming to Joseph and then we have a prophet coming both from the Lord. And in both passages, actually, your translation might not show this, mine doesn't, but both passages also begin with the word behold. Or see, some of your translation might say see, behold. When you see, it's terrible that my translation took the word behold out. I had a professor in seminary who said that whenever we see the word behold in the Bible, we should think to ourselves, looky here. The Bible's trying to point something out to you. Behold, behold. 
So uh, a messenger from the Lord in verse 20 and verse 22. Then in both passages, there's a virgin who conceives. In both passages, there's a son. In both passages, who's born. And there's a naming in both passages in verses 21 and then verse 22. And an explanation of what the name means in both the parallel events here, Isaiah and Matthew. Let's, uh, let's uh, think about Isaiah uh, 7 for just a minute. So in Isaiah chapter 7, the history here goes, as the chapter opens, King Ahaz is on the throne of Judah and he's an unfaithful king. He's being threatened by two enemies that are coming, that are uh, teaming up and they're threatening the nation of, of, uh, and the city of Jerusalem. And, and Isaiah the prophet comes to Ahaz and says, God is going to deliver you. And Ahaz is not a believer, really. It doesn't matter much to him. And Isaiah says, ask God for a sign. And Ahaz, he's uh, a pious hypocrite. He says, me, I could never ask God for a sign. And Isaiah has no patience for him. So Isaiah 7:13. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him, and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. So um, He's talking about his development in in, in the period of time that it takes him to learn to be weaned and to eat curds and honey and to know right from wrong. During that time, for before, verse 16, knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid to waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah, he will bring the king of Assyria. Here's a message for you, house of David. In Ahaz's time and in Joseph's time. And I think what's happening is Isaiah the prophet, is, is, he's in the court and he's speaking to the king. God will give a sign. Look, Isaiah, uh, Ahaz, a virgin. He points to this girl, some girl in the court. Maybe his fiance. Maybe. I'll, I'll make that argument in a minute. Isaiah says, Behold, Ahaz, here's a sign. She's going to have a baby. She's going to have a baby. She's going to have a son. She's going to give birth to the son. And before the son is old enough to know right from wrong, God's going to deliver you from your enemies. That's the sign from God. Okay. There's a twist, Ahaz. Because of your unfaithfulness to God, um, God's going to judge you with another king, the king of Assyria. Now, look at Isaiah 8.3 here. Then I made, Isaiah says, I made love to the prophetess, his wife. Did he marry that girl? I think he married that girl, maybe. And she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said to me, name him Mahershal al-Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to say, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the plunder of Samaria will be carried off by the king of Assyria. I think this may be that boy in chapter 8 that, that Isaiah had prophesied him in chapter 7. In chapter 7, he said, look, there's this girl. She's a virgin now. She's going to have a baby. Before that baby knows right from wrong, God's going to deliver you. Right? By the way, Mahershal al-Hashbaz must be the greatest choice for a biblical name ever. All right? We just had two girls born, and they didn't pick Mahershal al-Hashbaz. But if you have a son, Mahershal al-Hashbaz would be a beautiful... The kid will be 14 before he can spell it, but it's still... Still, a beautiful name. Now, 
Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, takes that scene in Isaiah and sees a pattern that's repeated in Joseph's day. Like in Ahaz's day, the nation of Israel in Joseph's day is in trouble. They've been in trouble for a long time. It's the Romans, the Roman invaders. The Romans are the worst. And a virgin has conceived. In Isaiah's day, she got married. She had a child uh, the, the normal way. But not Mary. Her pregnancy was different even more of a miraculous sign. The first baby in Isaiah's day was called Emmanuel because he was a sign that God had not abandoned the people. God was with them. They had a terrible king. They had ruthless enemies. But now, in Joseph's day, there's going to be someone who's born, a boy who is Emmanuel. He is God with us in even a greater way. An event that deals with the nation of Israel was lived out in the life of Jesus, only it's heightened, it's magnified, it's expanded, it's fulfilled. We're going to see something like that in the coming weeks, this pattern. Now, what's interesting about this passage is we have no record anywhere in the Bible of anybody calling Jesus Emmanuel. There's no record of that. Except... If you ask Leon, or Leon Morris said, if you ask any Christian today or for the last 2,000 years what Jesus means, they will say to you, oh, God's with us. He came to us. He's with us, Jesus. He's, he's caught in the flesh. Who's the they? They will call him Emmanuel. Well, his followers have been calling him Emmanuel for 2,000 years. Um, you should understand, too, the threat that's involved in this passage. Matthew even has it in here. It's a threat to, Isaac, to Ahaz. Ahaz, you don't believe God. There's a baby coming, and, and his coming is a sign that God is unhappy with you. There's a baby who's been born to a virgin. His name is Jesus. You ignore him at your peril. Because his coming is a sign of great blessing from God. And if you ignore the great blessing from God, there is judgment from God. So here we have this information about Jesus, who he is, the Holy Spirit and fleshed son. He's adopted by Joseph. He's the fulfillment of scripture. There's no scandal here. There's just wonder. What should you do with this? Well, follow Joseph's example. Look, verse 24. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. He did everything that the angel of the Lord commanded him. It sounds very much like what Jesus says at the end of the book of Matthew. Teach the disciples to obey everything I have commanded you. Joseph starts the book of Matthew out. He's the first disciple. He does everything that the Lord commands him to do. He's the first disciple in the book of Matthew. Others are going to come along. Will you join them in that? Because Jesus is worthy of this sort of allegiance. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for the rich and deep truths that are in this passage of Scripture. It's a passage that we are very familiar with and yet it is a treasure trove it is a mine full of riches lord i pray that you would um, work in our minds and hearts that we would be stunned by this beautiful and wonderful truth 
that Jesus is God's Son. Come by the Holy Spirit into the womb of the Virgin Mary. It's astounding. It's amazing. Lord, help us to feel that truth deeply and feel it aright so that when Jesus speaks and says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given me, make disciples who will obey everything I command, we say, yes, yes, yes. We will follow you. You are worthy of our highest allegiance. We pray, Lord, that uh, we confess to you that we are tempted by all kinds of broken allegiances around us. Make us solely focused on the Lord Jesus and the allegiance of which he is worthy. Help us, we pray. We ask these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.